Should I be silent now? Uh, no, you can start talking. Okay. <laughs> cool. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> the way I suggest we start this episode is by saying, uh, hey guys, welcome to EU Untangled. This is your host, Victor Aguilar. And then I introduce each of you and I say, sitting next to me is Harpa Arnarsdottir. Hey! And Anna Emanuelson, who is a parliamentary assistant at the European Parliament. And then I say, yes, this is me that you just... Exactly. Hello. That, that sounds good. You do not that have me confused good. with another person. I confirm my identity. <laughs> yeah. And then I say, this is my Maltesian visa. <laughs> Your Maltesian visa. Ah, welcome to the EU. <laughs> well, yeah. And then what I can say is today we're going to be talking about the greatest elections ever. Yes. Because... From the 23rd to the 26th of May, we're having European elections mm -hmm. in Europe. Yeah. European Union. Wow. Big disclosure. Yes. And then I tell the audience, well, we're going to be talking about uh, what these European elections are, what they mean, what's at stake, who's running, why you should vote, and who you should vote for. No, we're not going to tell them that. I might actually tell them. You might tell who, them that. Who they should you vote can, for. Okay. You can have political opinions. Please go for it. Do you have political <laughs> opinions, Anna? Um... I have to take stock and really soul search, but yes, I do work for a political party, so I have a lot of opinions about them, especially. <laughs> cool. Well, oh. this sounds like a good introduction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for rehearsing, and welcome to EU Untangled. Thank you. All right, Anna, tell us, what is going on? What are these European elections everybody, I mean, not everybody, but everybody is talking about? <laughs> well, um, I, we wish, firstly of all, that everyone would be talking about this, but it's, I think, uh, maybe in uh, a month or so, people will actually like notice that something is going on. But now I think it's us, uh, Eurocrats and Brussels people who are so focused on this but most even like people who are interested in politics have little or no clue that an election is coming up soon this is very interesting because the european parliament is the second largest democratic electorate in the world after the parliament of india oh apparently that's yeah. what i read according to internet according to wikipedia mm -hmm. because we have how many meps I think it's uh, 751. Wow, that was so Not coordinated. Not long, though. If Brexit goes through, it'll be 705. And the thing is, the European Parliament is also the largest transnational democratic electorate in the world with over 360 million citizens able to vote in the next election. So it sounds, should be a big thing. Yeah, it sounds so spacey or like almost science fiction, like the largest electorate mm. in the world. I don't know. It, it really is quite impressive when you think about it like that, because uh, I since I work in the European Parliament, for me, it's very much every day. And I see the same people in the elevators every day. And I just feel like it's not too big of a deal. But mm. it's actually quite cool that so many countries are having an election together. Yeah, because these elections work in a very special way, right? Um, mm -hmm. We're not going to assume that everybody out there listening to this podcast knows how the elections work. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how these members of the European Parliament get elected? Well, I'm actually not sure about the general rules, but I can tell you from a Swedish perspective how it works. The parties set their own lists 
And uh, Sweden has 20 mandates in the European Parliament. And if Brexit go through, we have 21. Yay! Hey. <laughs> so all all the parties get to kind of uh, call the authority that is responsible in um, in their country and say, hey, we want to be able to be elected and register for that. And then uh, I think right now 80 parties in Sweden have registered for election. But uh, many of them d- were like automatically registered because we had an election, like a national election this uh, fall. But I think that's impressive because, you know, you consider that's a single country mm. and you have 20 you said 20? No, 80. 80, yeah. 80 parties. Yeah. How many parties can you imagine are running? That's even more impressive than Yeah, the how many opinions can you have? That's mind-boggling, <laughs> wow. yes, that's true. It is, wow. Well, one thing that I find impressive about the European Parliament as a non-European, because as you rightly said before, maybe when you are part of this EU bubble, you start taking certain things for granted. They are the way they are, and there is nothing special about them. Mm. However, when you come from outside the European Union, you think, wow, there is such a mix of nationalities and citizenships making decisions together in the same place. So you have 751 members of the European Parliament representing 28 different countries of the European Union and overall representing 500 million European citizens. And they all speak different language. They represent different constituencies. And yet they somehow manage to work together and pass laws and oversee the budget of the European Union and have a say in rules that will affect a lot of people. Yeah, I think EU law constitutes like 60 or 70 percent of all of the laws in Sweden. And we've been members since 1995. So what is decided in the EU is very, very much affecting everyone who lives in every member state. But just to jump on that, then yeah. that's so mind-boggling that you say 60 to 70% of yeah. your laws I'm are not sure EU exactly, laws. but yeah. Regardless, that the voter turnout typically is not that high mm-hmm. compared to what you would have in a national election. Yeah. So you think maybe people are a bit far removed from the EU and unaware of the actual impact that the EU has on their daily life? I think one very telling example of how people think about the EU. I'm going to speak only from a Swedish perspective because I really, I can't say anything from any other perspective. But um, is that journalists in Sweden sometimes regard EU policy as foreign policy. Wow. Like it's the foreign policy part of the newspaper or the um, TV or something that uh, takes care of the EU policy issues and what's going on in the EU when it's actually internal policy. And we are, like, our government is going to meetings in the council. Uh, The Swedes have elected 20 representatives deciding what's going to happen. So uh, even journalists don't really think about the EU as a part of Sweden. Yeah. This is especially interesting because, as you said before, the members of the European Parliament are elected at national level. Mm -hmm. So every country holds their elections according to their national electorate law. And they even get to choose on which day people are going to vote. So between this period that the European institutions set from the 23rd to the 26th of May, countries get to say, okay, I want to have my elections held on this day. And then they have their own rules as long as it's... Harpa, you want to say something? Yeah, because I was going to make a point later in the podcast that one of the cool things that I found about the election is that they actually give the voters full four days to vote, but then that's not right, right? I think it's more like they... 
European Union sets the dates where the European elections should take place, and then each country, according to their own uh, regular procedures, decides on which day mm -hmm. their citizens will be able to vote. So there are countries that typically have their elections held on a Sunday. There are other countries that like to have them held on a Friday. So they get this freedom. And as long as the elections are held against the principle of proportional representation, they're fine. And then the number of MEPs that each country can get elected varies according to a formula that takes into account the population of that country. Mm. So it goes from six in countries such as Malta, that are among the smallest, to 96 in Germany, which is the largest by population in the EU. Now, funnily enough, Maltese citizens are better represented in mm. the parliament, yeah. you know, because they have more MEPs per Maltese citizen. But in any case, yeah, it's mostly uh, these elections being held at national level. So what you said before, Anna, strikes me as odd, because you're still having these elections held at the national level. People are going out and they're voting in Sweden for Swedish candidates, yes. right? Yeah. And yet they feel a little bit far away from them. They I treat the policies that they are making as foreign policies. Yeah. I think there are several explanations to why Swedes don't relate to the EU. And I think one of them is that people don't know anything about the EU or don't understand what it is. And if you say the words European Union, people just fall asleep, pass out. Like mm. that moment you start talking. Sorry, what do you say? Yeah, I was falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I fully agree there. I think that people, when they are voting in their national election, they feel like this is something that will fundamentally impact them. And it's almost a badge of honor. Like, I voted and it's shameful to admit that you did not take part in your national vote. But then for EU, they somehow disregard that as something less important when indeed it isn't. So maybe it's a it's a bit of a communication issue also around these elections. Like, why should the citizens care? I don't think that they yeah. fully grasp it. And I also think that uh, this is probably not only true for Sweden, that people in general don't really feel that they can have an impact on policy or that they their opinion matters in general. But I, who have now worked for one year in the parliament and before that been engaged in all different types of things, I've really seen that if you care about something and talk to a politician or to uh, like the uh, local uh, group where your party is, where you live, Like you can really make your opinion heard and it can go all the way up. I also think here that uh, maybe a fundamental issue is that the biggest challenges of our societies today can really only be fully tackled or efficiently tackled if it's a joint effort. You think climate change, tax evasion, uh, tax evasion sorry, and uh, immigration and, and security and yeah. all of those things. I really, it's only when you come together that you can really benefit Yeah, so it's just remarkable that people aren't aware of this. And Harpa, I think you're really onto something there because those issues that you just mentioned, especially like climate change or even pollution, things that are like in its nature very transnational, people think that EU should do something and people are happy when EU does something good that they think that, well, yes, EU should solve this problem or migration, depending on which side you're on. No matter all of these issues that are transnational, I think, have a lot of legitimacy with ordinary people. And if you can engage them to be like, well, if you vote for a party that cares about climate change, then 
they might do something about it on the legislative level and they will like yell at the commission and the, uh, the council and the other entities that they never heard of either, uh, either. But And I think also in the wake of the student climate protests and something interesting I found when I was trying to grasp a little bit how the polls have been going and what are the key issues that the electorate is concerned about, you saw this huge generational gap between young people who in every interview that I managed to quickly swipe through, everybody under the age of 30 mentions climate change as the biggest issue. And then you go 40 plus or something like that. And then it's uh, immigration and the economy. Mm. So it's really a pity that young people, it seems like they have the lowest number of voter turnout. Uh, and it's just, re- yeah, I really hope that these climate protests really the results of them is that we will have a higher turnout of young people in this election. What, what's your I feeling about so. that? I think so. I think the results are going to be very interesting, especially because over time, since the European Parliament was directly elected for the very first time in 1979, and we have to say here that European elections take place every five years, um, the voter turnout has been steadily decreasing. Not in Sweden, though. In Sweden, it has actually increased. Mm. That's just a fun fact. But one of the reasons what I could think that people in general are not very much interested about this is because of the way the European Parliament works. Even though members of the European Parliament are elected at national level, once they get elected and they sit in the European Parliament, they are actually sitting in political groups to increase their influence. So if you vote for a candidate in Sweden from one of your 80 parties, if that person gets elected to the European Parliament that person will sit within a larger European political group, of which we have eight in the parliament right now. And those political groups, even though they might have a certain ideology leaning towards the left or the right or the central left or the central right, or maybe they're greens or whatever. Or brown. Or brown. It could be brown. Or even almost black brown. (laughs) Black brown, yeah. Super duper brown. Yeah. Yeah. Any, Any orchid color? Or I don't orchid. know what orchid means. Oh, well, He's talking be... about his flower. I'm oh. very proud of my orchid. <laughs> okay, well, but now no, but... I think your your flower fits in. Sorry, no, it has to be its own group. <laughs> I'm sorry, they discriminate you because <laughs> that your body orchid is, is so beautiful. It should run for the elections. I think it would get some votes. It would be I'll like the egg it. on Instagram. Oh, exactly. Uh, like all the sarcastic the yeah, people. Yeah, I'd love that. But what I wanted to say is you vote for an MEP, but then that MEP will oftentimes make decisions based on his or her political allegiance to a certain group of parties yeah. that are in a huge coalition within the European Parliament. Yeah. And that political group might not necessarily represent the interests of the citizen that voted in the first place for this particular MEP. I think there is a big difference between uh, ideological issues and national issues. Like sometimes or very often you can see all of the, especially the big groups, be split in some issues because they are just different countries vote in different ways because of national interest. So that's very much true. Like that's also why it's important that the member states are in a good way represented in numbers, not only by political ideas, but also in mandates from countries because sometimes all of the Swedish parties agree on one issue where we go against our groups in different ways. 
because in Sweden we have this special rule that everyone likes and we have to protect it or whatever. And I think that's the case for all of the nationalities, that sometimes you have a Swedish or a German or a Maltese uh, issue that you want to uh, protect. Yeah. And before we move on, because we've been talking about the European Parliament and how important it is and how important it should be in the minds of European citizens, but we haven't actually said anything about what the Parliament can actually do mm. in real life within the scope of the European Union. Because when you talk about a legislative body, uh, what comes to mind usually is that a political organization has some say in the budget of a country. Like parliaments, that's what they do. And they also make legislation and they pass laws. They work as some sort of checks and balances against the other powers, the executive and the, legisl uh, the judicial power. Yeah. Is that the same case in the European Union? Can we think of the European Parliament as playing the role that national parliaments play? I think that the Parliament is in many ways not been taken as seriously as it should be because it's only since 2009 that we are a part of the legislative process. So uh, since that, the Parliament gets to decide on everything that's going to be EU law which is like a great improvement when it comes to how democratic uh, the EU is, because the parliament is directly elected, as we talked about. But, but I can jump in there because I was thinking a fun fact that when I was in school and I was started to study about the EU, like the key term that I took away from my first class was democratic deficit, the problem of the democratic deficit. And now I was thinking back to it. So you have the council and there you have democratically elected representatives. And now due to this change, you have the European Parliament also democratically elective and, and taking key decisions here. So I think that may have been a bit of a response to that traditional criticism that you would hear about the EU all the time. Yeah. Well, actually, the parliament is the only democratically elected body of the European Union. Well, the well, council, council is also because they're indirectly. It, well, But they represent their constituency nonetheless. I mean, well, they're there because somebody elected them. But then so. you would also agree then with the concept of a Spitzenkandidat, and that we're not going to dwell into in this episode. But that is basically the idea that the president of the European Commission, which is the executive branch of the European Union, and that almost sounded as brunch, but I meant to say branch. <laughs> branch. The executive branch. I'm still a little hungry. Sorry. <laughs> but... It's this idea that the president of the European Commission will be selected from the party that gets the most the votes, most votes yeah. in, or the European political group that gets the most votes in the European elections for the well, European so Parliament. EPP, they have basically. like first first pick. <laughs> and and EPP it, according to the polls, but yeah. let's see. But they get in first that sense, pick. you could also think that the president of the European Commission is democratically elected when that is actually far from being true indirectly but this is what very you have with, indirectly i mean in most governments i think where you have representative democracy then you know depending on the results of the election you have people forming coalition and the people who are taking the lead in the government not necessarily are the people who get the most votes true but yeah. that one thing is 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 certain and that is uh you don't vote for people to sit in the european council you vote for people to sit in the european parliament and it's just ironic that given that this is the one EU body, where you can actually select and have a say in who will sit there, people are not interested in this. That, that's, that's crazy to me. And also, Everyone should just get interested. Listen to yeah. us and become interested in the European Parliament I think that's exactly, election. I think that's exactly what we're missing. Those yes. words, Anna. Thank yeah. you for <laughs> ordering them. Become interested because it is interesting. Shape indeed. up. 
just a little bit of a commentary sort of of the like, the landscape of the political debate at the moment that, and what you see in the media all the time you see that there's this huge rise of euroscepticism and and right-wing parties uh, coming to power and it, in a way this is true but then there was the parlimeter 2018 that was carried out which is a eurobarometer like just a, a polling of uh, eu citizens And I think that with the younger voters, I don't know what exactly the definition is, but you had 78% of respondents saying that they are they believe that their country's membership of the EU is beneficial to them. And then this for the entire electorate, you had 62% of respondents saying that they had a positive view of the EU. And those were the highest rates that they had seen. Uh, since I think it was 92, signing of the Maastricht Treaty, and then 89, fall of the Berlin Wall. Do you think and it's because of Brexit? that Because that's my theory. I don't theory. know, but for me, that was completely mind-boggling because yeah. I hear Europe is crumbling, people are turning mm -hmm. against the EU, and then at the same time, you have this Eurobarometer where you have the most positive results that we have had in, what, 27 years or something. Yeah. That's weird. I think it's weird. just, the, like, if you start discussing EU, and even if you're left left or right, You will like land in the conclusion that it's stupid to do a Brexit, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the way that they are possibly doing it now. And I think that debate in itself might contribute to like people just thinking about the EU and and uh, like a report is actually reporting on what does a Brexit mean for yeah. milk farmers in uh, the south of Sweden. Mm. It's not good at all. And then people are like, we mm. have to stay in the EU. And yeah. Yeah. So maybe ironically, the Brexit has contributed to yeah, a better so. view yeah. of the EU. And you know that, you know, after the Brexit, that people say this all the time, but the, the thing that people Googled the most the following day was what's the EU. Yeah, so yeah. maybe we had some spillover effects. And also fun Fun fact is that Swedes were the ones, except for Brits, who were the most sad about Brexit. Oh. I think that's so funny that we were sad. Oh, wow. You should have voted in that referendum, <laughs> I guys. I oh, think no. Swedes would like to be Brits. I just want to go back and comment on the groups because... Mm -hmm. Please I think uh, the groups are interesting because no one knows about the groups. That If you vote for social democrats, they're going to sit in the social democratic group. And that means you're going to decide with German social democrats and Romanian, who are like this most corrupt country in the EU right now, and they're governed by the social democratic party. So you don't know like which group you're going to belong to. And it's, it's the same with the EPP. Like if you vote for a Christian Democrats in in uh, Sweden, they will sit and vote with uh, Viktor Orbán's uh, exactly. party, Fidesz. Fidesz. Yeah. yeah. So it's not as um, clean cut when it comes to ideology either, because like you might know where your party stands, but the people they collaborate closest to might have very different ideas of how to relate to Russia or uh, what's integrity on the internet uh, or uh, how important is climate change, even though uh, they ch share like the basic ideology when it comes to like the right-left scale. So I think that's interesting as well because all of the traditional party groups are kind of going through an identity searching period where they have to find where they stand on these type of issues. Like, uh, are we pro or against women's rights now that we have them and now that we can see that they yeah. are in danger in some countries? Yeah. Or are we like, how offensive are we going to be against climate change? Or uh, is it worth it people dying in the Mediterranean? Yeah. All of those issues that are kind of other types of values than the traditional should workers yeah. have more rights. And then you come to impossible situations like the one that the European People's Party is facing right now, which 
has been the largest party in the European Parliament since 1999. I mean, the one with the largest share of seats in the in the European Parliament. Which is a Christian democratic uh, kind of uh, right. Uh, it's moderate. a center-right political grouping in the Parliament. But as you mentioned correctly uh, before, one of the national parties that it includes in its membership is Fidesz, mm. which has been heavily criticized by the European Union as being this ruling party in Hungary that is pushing Hungary towards an illiberal democracy. Any adjectives that you add to the concept of democracy, mm. I think, are not actually adding anything to that, yeah. but actually taking something away from it. But the thing here is, it's been widely publicized, this fight between Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party in Hungary, and the values that the European Union stands for. And Viktor Orban's party has not faced any sanctions so far mm. from the European People's Party. Somebody could ask, why haven't they kicked out this party from the European People's Party? And one possible explanation could be because they would lose quite a few seats yeah. in the European Parliament and they would therefore lose influence. I mean, I'm not going to defend the devil, but I'm going to do that anyway. But if I, uh, I'm a social democrat and I work for the Swedish social democrats, uh, so I don't know how the people in the EPP really think. But in a way, if you keep them close, you can also maybe get them to uh, go on your line Inception which is better them. yeah instead of pushing everyone to the extreme right i mean i don't think it's a great idea really but i can understand if that's a logic they that they would uh, use to the funny defend thing why they're still there now i know that there are a lot of parties like nationalities in the epp that are saying that we need to push victor Orban out but that's because of the election i think because uh, right-wing extremism? Extremism. <laughs> extremism. Yeah. And extremists. <laughs> a right-wing extremists. I think it's a really hot topic for the election. And uh, all of these values that we mentioned, or I mentioned before, like uh, feminism and all of those kind of values are going to be the things that make people want to go and vote. And that's why all of these debates are getting hotter and hotter right now mm -hmm. and they're going to be super hot until the end of May when the elections are over. And then there's like time for compromise and agreement again, I think. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting to think that, okay, now if you look into the polling and I looked at the Politico's, the poll of polls to see uh, where we stand, it seems like the EPP and then uh, the SD, the Alliance of Socialists and Democrats are going to be the two biggest parties still. But you never know with these elections. I mean, we had the same kind of rhetoric in the US and in Brexit. So it's just mind boggling to think that what if these parties take the majority in the parliament? Yeah. And these are the very parties that have the values no, that go scary. against EU values. Mm. And you see how difficult it was even with the current landscape in the parliament to issue article 7 against uh, hungary but then imagine if they have the majority they're like what would it look like i mean how would the parliament even deal with that kind of situation and it's not only about the parliament right because it trickles down to other eu institutions if you think about it the current president of the european council the president of the european parliament and the president of the european commission they all belong to the same political group in the parliament, the European People's Party. And also, according to some statistics, nine out of 28 heads of states, including Angela Merkel, whose party is also part of the EPP. So I think the effects just multiply themselves. And then you end up in within a bubble that is itself within another bubble. And then 
uh, all these values are start clashing against each other, and you end up with a mix of policies that do not necessarily reflect what people voted for in the first place. Yeah, but I think uh, I have to uh, kind of that statement I, th I think that's really interesting because that's one perception of democracy is that all opinions are kind of represented and then you just see who win but another perception of dem democracy is that you know who you're voting for and what values they stand for what they're gonna fight for but in the end to kind of reach policy you have to compromise of course So I think it's the compromising that sometimes people have a hard time understanding. Like, how did we get this result that no one really likes? But it's actually just the result of democracy. You uh, you're absolutely right there because, you know, after election and after you have a new government for about a year, you always have the emergence of the exact same criticism. Well, I voted for you because you were going to say you were going to do A, B and C, but now you're doing D, E and F. So I wasted my vote. How can this happen? You know, yeah. but people, it's a fundamental function of democracy and society that we cannot have our way the whole time. We yeah. live in a, in a community and the community has to come together to a decision everybody can live with. Yeah. But wouldn't it be clearer who you're negotiating with and what you're negotiating if there were clear lines of where you stand? Because in this case, I am, I might be voting for somebody who has nothing to do with a party that has lean towards the far right and they happen to be in the same bag mm. once they sit in the parliament yeah and so then it gets kind of like lost in the weeds whereas if that party were sitting within a coalition of other parties also represented in the parliament where their views are also taken into account then i know that my party or the person that i voted for during the european elections is sitting with like-minded people and negotiating together with another bunch of people who have a different mindset. I think uh, it's a very important point because uh, in a way, if you spend every day uh, in the same group as a politician with someone who has values that you absolutely disagree with, like for example, the other parties in EPP who are compromising and talking to Fidesz, Viktor Orban's party every day. I think that's horrible. I don't think they should do that. I think they should kick them out because it's not, as you're saying, it's not honest to the electorates that they didn't expect them to collaborate with this kind of people. They don't belong in that group and they have to take a stance and say, we are not racist. We don't hate homosexuals and, um, and the feminists. Uh, we uh, we are pro equal human rights and media being free and uh, all of those things. Can I ask a question? Because yeah. what comes to mind now, and this is maybe a stupid question, but maybe somebody else has this question as well. How does it happen in the first place that a party like Fidesz gets accepted into the European People's Party? Like, were they like sheep in wolf skin or something? But how does I don't this know. come about? Yeah, I don't know. But I, I, I think Fidesz stood for different things before. That's a problem. And I think we have, I mean, those who follow European politics and policies, they have seen repeatedly certain members of the European Parliament tell Viktor Orban at the Parliament, hey, you used to be somebody different. And you used to stand for values that differ from what you're doing today. So I think Fidesz was not originally a far-right party. That's my impression. And now that at the national level in Hungary, it is standing against certain fundamental European values. And it's becoming more and more nationalistic. That's when the European People's Party starts to think, hey, maybe we cannot allow this kind of party to be 
in our cluster. The thing is, why didn't they think about it earlier? Because this didn't start yesterday. This But has been I going on for a couple Fidesz of years now. shares a lot of values with other parties. They're conservative. Uh, they are uh, market liberals. They uh, uh, have like this complete palette of views that are completely in agreement with Christian democracy as an ideology, which is very, from my point of view, It's extreme opinions. But the difference is that since they are in government and have, as I know it, quite a loud support in uh, Hungary, I might be wrong, uh, they also have a lot of people protesting, but they're actually making reality of their views. And uh, they're going beyond what they have in common when it comes to uh, these kind of family values and stuff like that. They they even prohibit gender studies from being an academic uh, uh, kind of thing to where you can get state funds to, for research. They actively uh, inhibit um, journalists from doing their job. They are interfering with the, uh, with the justice. So they are going far beyond into an autocratic direction as well as having these values. So I think that's why all of the Democrats in the Christian Democratic Party, in the uh, EPP, should really mark and say, this is not okay, you know? I agree, I agree. And uh, just... <laughs> We all agree. Listen, I would like to move uh, a little bit away from uh, this... Hungary. <laughs> from, from, from Hungary, from Fidesz, from, uh, from what is already there in the parliament and talk a little bit about what might be coming up next after these elections. I think there are a couple of very interesting political movements out there that have their eyes set in the European elections. And maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Yes. I don't know if you have heard of a guy called Emmanuel Macron. No, no who's he? Well, he happens to be <laughs> a former investment banker who ah. was elected as the president of La République Française. Oh my God, what ah. a career switch. Wow, that's I know, cool. I know. That's what I have in mind <laughs> yeah. for myself, you know, in uh, perhaps eight or nine years. But he has a party called En Marche. Right? La République En Marche. En Marche. Yes. En Marche. The Republic on the move. <laughs> yes. And the interesting thing is that they had not kicked off their European campaign until literally this week, the day yeah. before yesterday, which was March the 5th. When you guys out there listen to this podcast, it's going to be like March 17th, uh, but we're recording on March 7th. And two days ago, Macron launched his European campaign. And he did so together uh, with a very interesting article that he got published in a couple of dozen newspapers in different languages all around the world, where he's calling for a European renaissance and proposing a lot of very bold things for the future European unions. Let's hear them. Oh, okay. You want to hear about them? I <laughs> yes. was so ready. A European agency for the protection of democracies. And you have to cheer according to how... How much, much you we agree. like it? Yes. I okay. don't know what it is. Uh, well, it's about a, having a bunch of experts deployed to different member states when they are having elections held to protect the elections from foreign interference. Okay. So Sounds practical and necessary in the modern age. But I don't know if it is... Necessary or unnecessary? Necessary. Necessary. You necessary. think... Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it has to be at a European level, but like that's something you need. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we're pro. I say yay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm pro. Next point he would like to impose a ban on the funding of European political parties by foreign powers, which I think is pretty much related to uh, the first point. I, I still, I also think that 
this is forbidden anyways, except for like two countries, Netherlands and Belgium. I uh, didn't know really? that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but never mind. Well, maybe you should speak to Macron. Okay, yeah. next point <laughs> yeah. in the agenda <laughs> is he would like to create a European Council for Internal Security and have a single asylum policy. Um, so, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not, one. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm actually um, not hearing you guys cheer. So no, I'm going to take that you, as can this you is say not it again? very exciting. Okay, he wants a single asylum policy yeah. and he wants a European Council for Internal Security. Yeah. Well, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, and this is just a title you've given me. I, I would have. To of course, learn more. like this is this is yeah. so unfair to yeah. our listeners and to Macron First himself instinct, because we're though, not discussing like, his policy; we're just naming them. So I'm just going to okay. read them through. I feel like he's through. flying high. Like yeah, he's he, pushing for deeper he's setting integration. A high right? Yeah, yes, that's what he ultimately he wants. He is so. pro-European, so and well, I'm just going to read the next two things: yeah. a treaty on defense <laughs> and security, and also a European Security Council. Uh, EU minimum wage and a European climate bank, which I find very cool. Okay. And he wants all these things to be agreed upon at what he calls the Conference for Europe, which he is planning on having uh, held by the end of this year. Now, uh, the interesting question here is how he will get to do these things. To begin with, he just launched his European campaign. Uh, to me, it sounds pretty late. Uh, given that I think a lot it of other pretty early actually yeah early. the, the yeah. funny thing is okay just fun fact uh, the, this is not really a fun fact though but the first thing that struck me when I was trying to research the candidates is that like disclaimer we don't really know who they are yet and I'm yeah. like this election is so close yeah how can we still not know who these candidates are I think that we won't start campaigning until like two weeks before the election or something but so, that's uh, maybe that's you know euros like why are people paying attention to the election? Well, they're not going to vote anyways. Like what if you're busy busy the week before the election? You're just going to miss the whole you know, thing. You know you know you know you know what's sad about the voting, and I know that we already covered this topic, but you just made me reflect on something, and that is the fact that over time the interest in the European Parliament and the European institutions at large, as measured by the voter turnout during the European elections, has been still decreasing from almost 62% in 1979, the first year where European elections were held, to a low of 42% in 2014. And the mm -hmm. funny thing is that throughout all those years, the European Parliament has done nothing but gain more powers and mm -hmm. rights. So yeah. they have and more be countries. Exactly. Yeah. They have become closer to could, a real Could that be a reason also, parliament. also that um, when you have more and more countries that people uh, are like are Respe new in the union and don't really know about it that much and don't care that mm. much and it might Maybe be the as case. It get, Just as have it more expands, and more people. it becomes more yeah. complex and far removed, and you know, maybe that yeah. plays a part. I don't want to get lost uh, here. <laughs> you know, it was just we a little detour lost, because detour. I want to come back to another very interesting movement out there that is called Volt. You might have heard of this party, no. which was described by Politico's Ryan Heath as led by pro-EU policy wonks. Because it is a party that uh, apparently is the first pan-European progressive political movement as described by its own members. And it's made of basically very young, like-minded Europeans uh, spread across uh, oh, different yeah, European countries I, that are now running yeah, together on a common ah. platform that they call the Amsterdam Declaration for the European Parliament. They're all sitting around in a yes. <laughs> living room in Amsterdam like, this is the Amsterdam Declaration. And tomorrow, cool. tomorrow they are <laughs> yeah. having... Uh, 
a meeting held here in Brussels mm-hmm. um, where they are going to kind of like uh, talk to other young people or whoever comes by and tell them about this Amsterdam Declaration. Do you think we can come? Anyone can go, yeah. It's on Facebook. I already ah, signaled my interest. I know what I'm doing interest. tomorrow. Okay, cool. Yeah. And what's their like ideology? There's just going to be a rep, like in a, a, a ch- well, channel the members' views? Or? They, okay, they. I think they are very idealistic, which on the one hand I think is pretty good. On the other hand, Macron is also pretty idealistic. And uh, we've seen how difficult it is to turn ideas into policy. But Volt is defined as a grassroots approach to politics. And they say explicitly that they are neither left nor right, that they just focus on finding the best solutions for all. And they are very bold in their claims. Because Mm. in the Amsterdam Declaration, you can read that one of their priorities is fixing the EU. Mm. Great. Great. You want to know one of the most interesting points? I'm always thinking like, hey guys, let's just fix the world. But I think what I just think about is the five-star movement. Mm, Weren't they also basically this idea, but in Italy, that uh, we're just going to represent everyone and we're just going to be the voice of the people. And now they are in one of the most racist groups in the European Parliament, yeah. very involved in animal welfare issues. Like they're very kind of confusing party. Uh, they yeah. identify as somewhere to the left, but also the extreme right. And they're not really contributing to any solutions or like any real solutions to complex problems. So I think this is a very naive way of viewing politics. But you have to bear in mind that I am a member of the Swedish Social Democrats who has been existing for a hundred years. And so I'm really, I'm very skeptical to these kind of new parties in that way that how efficient would they be making policy but I'm also a Democrat, so I think it's great when people actually care about politics. I think that when it comes down to politics, being skeptical is very healthy of yeah. anything. And again, I do believe that having clear lines is very useful for voters. So yeah, I'm skeptical too, but I'm also kind of excited. And I would love to go there tomorrow and learn more about what they're trying to do. Because I'd love to hear it sounds... your reporting. Oh, because you're not going. That's why you're <laughs> telling not going. us. Okay. But, uh, let's, uh, My mom's coming tomorrow. Ah, you could bring her there. I'm sure yeah. they will be thrilled to see uh, mom, we Swedish to, mom. I know you just arrived with a flight and it's uh, uh, International Women's Day, but we should go to Volt. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sounds like a revolt. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and now the third political movement, maybe I'm not being fair there, or I'm, maybe I'm being One, too fair. another political movement. It's not a political movement, it's just the movement. I know the movement. Tell us about the movement, Harpa. No, I can't really say. It's true. Like it, they, they are planning to run, apparently. But it's uh, Steve Bannon's attempt to have a right-wing unification mm. and a joint kind of effort in the European Parliament and providing all of this polling assistance to all of the right-wing parties across Europe. But, I mean, as far as I know, like they're not really making any waves. I've not really spotted anything recently, and no, I, I, I didn't even know they were running, planning on running. Still, I, I just heard about them like a couple of months ago, a little bit when when this was news when they were kind but of. But Bannon came to Brussels a year ago yeah. in the summer of yeah, he 2018. He has an office, maybe down the street, you know. Well, what I I haven't heard much of them either. No. But the truth is that Bannon is not alone. He's partnering up with a Belgian whose mm-hmm. name is Michael. I don't yeah. even, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but let's call him Michael. His last mm-hmm. name is Modric Kamen. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, this Belgian lawyer set up the movement, which became last year a foundation. 
that's mm -hmm. when Bannon stepped in. Mm -hmm. And Bannon himself says that the movement is not a party, but rather a club. Yeah. Great. How nice is that? <laughs> and that he is not a politician and that he's not running. He's just a facilitator. Victor, all of these movements that you have presented to us yeah. are making me very depressed. Because <laughs> like, we have Macron's extremely kind of naive and in a way beautiful view of how the world should be. But also extremely uh, liberal and uh, mm -hmm. I just lost my... Oh, you were saying yeah. that uh, all these movements that I presented are not uh, lifting your mood because Macron's is just too idealistic. And then I also talked about Volt, yeah. which seems to be even more idealistic than Macron's and less uh, with less of a shape. Yeah. Uh, but you want to hear something actually uplifting? Well, I'm not sure it is. <laughs> but the funny thing is that apparently a lot of the right-wing European parties are not acknowledging Bannon. Yeah, yeah. So, for that's, instance... That's, that's nice. how I know about the international interference into the election and contributing to European political parties. Because uh, the reason that he is actually in Belgium, I think, has more to do that financial laws or whatever you want to call it, allows for him to be active here. But he was shunned in the other... Uh, EU member states apart but he, from the he's Netherlands. actually in Belgium like walking around he, in yes, Brussels yes he has an office here in Brussels I mean I don't know if he's here right now but uh, yeah he's here he set up station here he moved from the US and he came to Brussels and he has an office here yeah actually the Northern League so Matteo Salvini's uh, party in Italy has publicly said that Bannon is not in their radar of course nobody in the right mind would say like oh yeah Bannon <laughs> is in our radar yeah. we love that guy let's bring him to the table but even uh, Marine Le Pen uh, in France uh, with her national rally party has uh, taken some distance from Bannon mm. and she has even said that the political uh, groups here in Europe should be defined by themselves without any foreign interference and that she is suspicious of Bannon because Bannon <laughs> is not European. Yeah. So at least she stands by <laughs> yeah, her yeah. words. Yeah. But the, the, we don't like other nationalists. Yeah, <laughs> including Bannon, who doesn't like other nationalists. <laughs> oh no, he who adores nationalists. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. I was going to say that his ultimate goal was to unite all of these right-wing extremist parties and he has utterly failed. So mm. at least that's one thing we can be cheerful about. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think these uh, Americans didn't know how complex... EU politics can be. <laughs> they thought it was as simple as the United us. States <laughs> no. and they failed like yeah. Napoleon in Russia. <laughs> oh, speaking of Russia, Anna, yes. one thing that I've been dying to ask you about, this rumor that has been circulating, which apparently is not a rumor because it was publicized in the news, about the daughter of yeah. Vladimir Putin's spokesperson being an intern in the European Parliament. Yes. And yeah. everybody freaking out. <laughs> about security concerns yeah. and how is it possible that the European Parliament allows the daughter of the spokesperson of one of the least friendly enemies of the European Union <laughs> to do an internship in the European Parliament. Yeah. And well, I, I even even heard some calls for like, hey, I let's think kick her out. I personally, I think it's very strange because when I applied for my internship when I was doing an internship, I had to fill in, I don't know, half a meter of papers, including information of where does your grandma live? Actually, it, yes. where, where does she live? I had to put wow. my grandma's address. That's remarkable. Which is? Which is <laughs> Solängsvägen in Torslanda. Nobody ever will understand. <laughs> yes. So your uh, grandma so, is safe. I mean, 
I guess she passed the security test. That's all I can say. Mm. But uh, and uh, now she will be the least efficient spy ever. Where is your address? Oh, it's the Red Square, the Kremlin. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now, actually, next week the Parliament is voting on a report on Russia, which is very, very sharp in its. Uh, and she's a wording. rapporteur. And she's the shadow rapporteur for the EPP. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, um, I think she's been in the parliament for maybe a couple of weeks. I haven't seen her. I'm not sure if she's even there or if it's just like uh, some kind of... Shall we find out? Yeah, we should find out. Okay, let's set up uh, some lunch with I, her. I don't even know what she looks like or her name, but um, I'm sure she has plenty of lunch offers from uh, I have uh, an idea. shady politicians. Let's try to have her on the pod. <gasps> Let's have her on the podcast. Let's do that. I think that would be the greatest achievement of my life. <laughs> oh my God. That's the closest I'll ever be to Vladimir Putin. <laughs> yeah. This is our chance. We should grab it, guys. Like yeah. two handshakes from Vladimir Putin, or maybe one even. Yeah. I suggest that on that happy note, we wrap up this podcast. I want to, first of all, thank Anna Emanuelson for being here on the pod. It was thank really nice having you. Thank you for inviting me. It was so much fun to, uh, to be a part of your great podcast. Yes, and I learned a lot personally. So you did? It was so, yeah, That's a shock yeah. to me, actually. Yeah, well, I know nothing about the European Parliament, so it's like I, I have a second uh, master's <laughs> walking out of this podcast, so thanks. That's great. Well, thank you, any, everyone out there, for listening, and see you next week. But before I say goodbye, I want to remind you to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at... What is our... Uh, it's something EU underrated. Well, we'll, 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 you, you will find it in the yeah. show notes. You have a great yeah, yeah. social media strategy. You're on every platform and you don't know your own hashtag. Or We're account. marketing geniuses. That's why we're the least listened to <laughs> podcast on EU affairs. I'm not sure, though. They're probably less listened to as well. That's really true. <laughs> okay, bye. If you like the content of this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you enjoy listening to EU Untangled, the best way to help it grow bigger, better, and greater is by sharing it with your friends and leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For constant updates, you can also follow EU Untangled on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure you check out our awesome website, podworld.org untangled. You'll find tons of interesting information in the show notes and a lot of cool links. See you next time. You know, Anna, every single morning I wake up, I make some coffee, I open my door. I don't want to hear anything else. I was going to say, and then yeah, I stop. cry a little bit. <laughs> and then <laughs> uh, You didn't have to say that out loud for the no, public it's, sharps. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, Anna, first thing I think in the morning is... About me. Of course. <laughs> oh, damn. Burnt. Okay. Let's do this again. <laughs> yes. Start over. Okay, Anna. The first thing I think of when I wake up in the morning is what is life like for, for a parliamentary assistant? I know you would say that. What do you do on a daily basis? How much do you earn? Who do you meet? Who do you take selfies with? Oh my with? God, I'm going to tell you everything. Oh okay, boy. What, the first question is how much do I earn? What's your name? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, for I, I blah, blah, blah. Um, it's Anna. It's my name is Anna Emanuelsson. Thank you, Harpa. I work You're for welcome. the Swedish Social Democrats in the European Parliament. Full disclosure. 
I worked there since June before I did an internship with them as well. Hey, June is uh, the month of my birthday. Yeah, it's a great month. To it's start. also the month that I will go see Spice Girls on Wem- in Wembley. Ooh. <laughs> wow, so many coincidences, guys. I think yes, there's a sign. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well... Right now, work in the parliament is quite hectic because uh, since we have the elections, everyone wants to get everything done. Uh, Classic when they're about to be ousted. Yeah. So now all of the legislation that uh, everyone cared too much about to uh, agree uh, and all the legislation that uh, that people didn't care enough about to actually push through are on the agenda. So we have um, plenary sessions, which means that we all go to... Uh, the wonderful city of Strasbourg, uh, all the time now. Oh, yeah, because one thing we didn't say in the pod was that the European Parliament has actually three headquarters, Strasbourg, yeah. Brussels, and Luxembourg. But Luxembourg doesn't count because no one cares about Luxembourg. Nothing hey, happens there. That's, that's where the bulk of the administrative work takes place. Uh, who cares? <laughs> I send. Ain't a, nobody got time I for send that. a letter there every once in a while. Would like this is my uh, mission receipt. You probably wouldn't get paid <laughs> if it weren't for Luxembourg. Okay. Be grateful, Anna. <laughs> okay, Luxembourg. I acknowledge your right to exist as one of three. Uh, do you even know? Where do you even know what the capital of exists. Luxembourg is? It's Luxembourg, right? <laughs> You're right about that. Yeah, I know very few capitals in the world. It's embarrassing. I also know. Should we do a test? No, because I already told you... What's the capital of Sweden? It's Stockholm. Ooh, you're good at this. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, but what was your question again? Uh, Yeah, you're taking it too seriously. My real question is, like, how much does a cup of coffee cost in the parliament? What do you you mean? I want to know about your social life, Anna. I don't want to know about this boring stuff. I want to know about the colors in the calendar that you have there. Like pink for this, blue for that. no, no, no. I don't, I'm not organized in that way. Like, I I don't... I have a Do you mean a lot of folders. celebrities? Did you shake Mark Zuckerberg's hand when he was there no, last year? No, but there's quite a funny story about that because one of the Swedish MPs, uh, MEPs... Oh, was she the one who took a selfie with yes, him at the end of the meeting? Yes. Oh my and God, I remember that. it was a that. huge scandal because she was supposed to interrogate him and say like... Why are you harvesting people's information yes. and exploring democracy and uh, hating everyone? So she said something in that regard, and then afterwards she was—it was so obvious that she was. But she was one of the first starstruck. ones to, to stand up and she approach him, and then she him. she took out her phone and then she took a selfie and yeah. and posted it on Twitter and said something and something like. Wait, she didn't so post it on Facebook. Person. Mm. No, I think maybe Twitter. I'm not sure. Probably Facebook as well. That's uh, and today actually she got uh, unofficially or officially fired from the list. So she's supposed to be the top candidate for the Swedish <gasps> Liberals, but now she's uh, she, because she's too like awkward. Like she does a lot of awkward things. Like she has some side uh, gigs uh, with, where she earns like eight thousand euros a month. That is completely in conflict with the things she does mm. in the parliament stuff like that. But that's not. Her. Uh, me. That's her life. Are you yeah. sure? So you're not a parliamentary assistant to her? No. Okay. No. <laughs> what else? Like, if I if I were at the parliament, and that's possibly the reason why I'm not, I, I would be just, like, smiling at all the cameras that you have there. Like, it feels like a catwalk. Do you feel like a celebrity when you are in the European I think parliament? I've accidentally been in to different uh, broadcasts around Europe I don't know, a trillion times walking past looking stressed and like looking for some strange room. Like the parliament is impossible to find. It's a labyrinth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, You want to go to the toilet and you get lost. You end up at the cafeteria. Yeah. It's very weird. 
No, and if you want to find a cafeteria, it's closed because they have like strange <laughs> hours. And then you Sorry. have to find like a strange meeting room in a building you didn't know exist. Like, I know. It's a lot of... And they all have like very weird names. Yeah. Uh, different old men who meant something to Europe that Once. no one knows anything about except for them being an acronym now. <laughs> mm, poor guys. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so just tell me, are you happy? I am very happy. I think it's uh, inspiring to work with politics because, like, imagine that you are a normal person. And then one day, you mm -hmm. are sitting at the desk in the European Parliament amending legislation proposals. Legislation. Legislation. Yeah. Not legislation. Legislation. No, it's legislation. Uh, that's, I don't know. The word that you got, we all are thinking of. That yeah, word. That so one. you feel... Like, sometimes you feel like, oh, my God, am I really doing this? Am mm. I really, like, writing? Because we are, we do basically all the work that the parliamentarians are doing. So we are discussing with them what do we want to say regarding this and this. And then we do the work and they, they then they approve or say, no, we want to change that, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, it's actually you sitting there writing or, like, uh, writing a letter to the, uh, the commission or whatever. And it's just... Well, so that was you? Yeah, all the letters to the commission. Oh my god, that was such pain in the... Yeah. Yeah. So you really So relatable. Are, yeah, <laughs> so you really go to work every day with a sense that you can have an impact on the world, uh, which must feel great. Every other day. Every, every other day? And every other day I feel like no, The other days you're like, change. where the fuck is the bathroom? But I <laughs> Why do I keep winding up in the damn cafeteria? I have an equally important question. Is it true that all of you get an electric scooter? Uh, we actually have an electric, it's not a, is it a scooter when you sit down? Like, it's like for people with a handicap. I think that's called the um, uh, electric chair. Okay. No, it's not. No, no. it's not that. It's like a mix uh, An electric chair is also where you get mm. killed, right? Like, I want to say like an electric <laughs> wheelchair. Wheelchair, yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we have an electric chair. <laughs> but, uh, they, they gave you an electric chair. <laughs> that's why oh, nobody that's comes one. home after a day of work at the parliament. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we have one of those, but I've never seen anyone use it. But um, uh, I think you can borrow a bike, but I'm not sure you can borrow a scooter. Maybe you can. Really? Somebody All the told me MEPs can uh, go with uh, different cars and stuff. But my last question: Are you going to the Facebook event to encourage people to vote for Berlusconi so we can have him on Plas Lux every Thursday? <laughs> no. What? No. Sharp. Are, never... are we going? Yes, I am starting to regret inviting he, this person would, to the podcast. Like, who would not vote for that? Who is she? But he, but he would not show up. Like, he would be elected. Yeah, he's not he wouldn't be there. And, and he would buy drinks for everybody. That's true. But uh, you and have strippers. to also keep like three meters <laughs> from him and be like, "Thank you for the drink," and then run away. Yeah, that's what I would. That's do. what, that's what I, I do with my drinks <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> me too actually that's my strategy generally going out uh, cool i think I, i'm glad to see that we finally agree thank on something you. <laughs> well, thank you thank you 